Quick content warning at the top, the man who wasn't there includes plot elements that discuss sensitive topics like suicide, and our episode discusses them as part of the movie. Also, as for listening experience, this is one of a few episodes where Harry's mic was on the fritz a bit. We've cleaned it up as best we can and hope it's still at least kind of listenable. Enjoy! Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Thank you for that kind introduction, Jason. Welcome back to the Try Love Podcast, a literal roundtable discussion about movies that we see at the Trilon Cinema. I'm Billy Bob. I'm Jason. I'm Cody. I'm here. I'm Aaron. Take it away, Jason. Thank you, Billy Bob, for that wonderful introduction. Uh, it's nice you came along cut. to be on our podcast. Just, just to say that, that introduction was fine. line, too, man. Yeah. That didn't cost us a penny. He did, I believe. He's very busy. Uh, so he's Very gone so now. Much, uh, Billy Bob, really Mr. busy, Bob. Okay. Oh, my God. So we have good times here. Um, today we're going to be talking about The Man Who Wasn't There, a 2001, I believe, film Jason by Joel Nathan Cohen. Saying Busy Bob was the equivalent of putting a scalpel in my neck, like James Gandolfini gets in this movie. Spoiler, Spoiler alert. Uh, Aaron wants to tell us what's happens in this movie. What's happening in this movie? Pancake's house. I'm so house. excited to tell you guys what happens in this movie. I have a whole plot summary written. I'm not going to do You're not 30 words. I've got the whole thing. Start to finish. Let's go. Let's go. I will not I interrupt you. I, don't have, like, very I promise not to interrupt you if you just okay. start. Note that I did not make that promise. The Man Who Wasn't There, 2001, is a neo-noir film written and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. Um, set in the mid to late 1940s, uh, the film stars Billy Bob Thornton as a barber who is um, adrift, kind of generally apathetic toward everything in his life. Uh, one day, a businessman comes into the barber shop that he works at, um, talking about a scheme to get rich, uh, investing in dry cleaning. And he uh, decides, the thought kind of keeps staying in the back of his mind, and eventually he decides to blackmail his wife and a friend of his um, who have been having an affair that he is kind of, again, apathetic about. Uh, but he does know that it's happening. He decides to blackmail specifically the friend who owns a, uh, a department store um, for the money in order to uh, pay the businessman in order to get in on this dry cleaning scheme. Um, when his friend finds out, uh, you know, he uh, talks to him about it. There's a confrontation, um, and a scuffle ensues. Uh, the friend is played by James Gandolfini, um, and Billy Bob Thornton ends up killing James Gandolfini. Um, and funnily enough, his wife actually is the one that the police suspect for the crime. She goes to jail. Uh, while awaiting trial, uh, she commits suicide. Uh, content warning on the beginning of this would be good. And... Um, Eventually, uh, the police find out that it actually was him. Uh, he goes to jail, and at the very end of the movie, he is put in the electric chair. Is there anything big, big, big I'm missing there? That was Min a really good part. Minute 23, Thank you. not bad, dude. Minute not 23 bad. is yeah. okay. Yeah. One, two, three, it's nice and, you know, clean. Ooh, yeah. It's like poetry. Yeah. Uh, you said a businessman in Billy Bob's barber shop. I was very... Ooh, that's good. Yeah, that's like a really very good... very gratified by that. Thank you. Above average difficulty. Is gratified the creepiest way I could have said that? It's 
I mean, I'm into it, but... <laughs> Who feels super gratified right now by Aaron's uh, plot summary? I feel uncomfortable by all three of you. Blessed by Billy Bob's Barber Shop. That is maybe the most <laughs> successful plot summary I've ever done. It is, really? without a doubt. And, and and no- Thank you, Billy, Billy Bob's back there. He came back just to say, great job, Aaron. Oh, thanks. Is that in the other room? You want to say anything from the other room, Billy Bob? Oh, he's gone? He was arguably never really here. I had to catch a flight. I'm trying to signal to you that you, be, you can be closer to the mic. Just about, like, this close. Look how close I not, am. That's not perfect. lips on, but perfect. lips off. Or lips, lips on. I'm coming. I, 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 use, lips I use Harry's mic in the last step. I'm used to being a couple inches further away. Yeah, and that's that's nice. You have good mic etiquette. Um, so what did we <laughs> think about this film? I, I prefaced. I haven't had time to think about this film after we saw it. I was coaxed into recording on this episode. So <laughs> we had a gun. We just had to put it in the back of your head and just like listen, no, motherfucker. Uh, we're but for real, I, I, I will be more of a sounding board than an actual like generator of conversation. But I do want to know what everybody thought about this film because I don't Jason think I've, I've really says recapped that and it. He always contributes insight. Really great things. Yeah. Shout out to Jason. Yeah, Shout we really Jason. love your contributions. We like what you have to say about movies. I got angry. Wow. <laughs> no, we just love what you have to say. <laughs> what did you think? <laughs> Uh, I used to feel gratified, now I'm terrified. To, to start it off, uh, I didn't know anything about this Coen Brothers movie. Weirdly, I feel like this is like maybe one of the least talked about of all the Coen Brothers movies. Oh yeah, it's probably like Serious Man and this are the ones that I don't hear people talking about. Nobody yeah. talks about Intolerable Cruelty, which is, a lot of people put it with the Lady Killers as their worst, and right. it's actually not a bad movie, even though it's still new. I've, I've heard but... people talk about that more negatively. Yeah. But like but like this is the one that like nobody talks about positively or negatively. It it is kind of like the main character just kind of drifting around in their filmography Ooh. not known for any one specific thing yeah. other than maybe being harder to watch than a lot of their other movies. Yeah, well this came directly did it come directly after Oh Brother Where Art though? Like a year later or something within their fil- 2001 <clears throat> so it might have been within their film so like it's after Oh Brother which was probably received really well at the time, and it's very well beloved now. Would it you is, say? Yeah. Uh, and then, so it's then it's the man who wasn't there, followed by intolerable cruelty More like and the lady box killers. Office that wasn't there. Ooh. <laughs> this is actually, if you look at it from like a larger perspective, it's in in terms of like their filmography. It's The Big Lebowski in '98, Oh Brother Where Art Thou in 2000, The Man Who Wasn't There in 2001, and then Intolerable Cruelty and the Lady Killers. So it's like. It's kind of like a dead zone. Like more of their more popular, or at least like more poppy, no, I guess, films. <sighs> With the man no, who wasn't the there. First direct to DV, or direct to VHS Dragon Ball Z film. Okay, stop, stop it. Garlic Junior. It's a great movie. We it can get more movie. fringe. Let's God, he brought up anime. On the man who wasn't there, you brought up anime. How is that even <laughs> oh, fucking possible? <laughs> um, it's just it's a weird. Um, it's bookended by two, you know, of their more kind of like well-known and more popular or poppy films. Um, and it's like a very weird one to yeah, be there, I guess. Totally. Yeah. Um, but that being said, uh, we don't, I don't know. I don't usually give my just overall opinion, but I feel like this movie maybe warrants it. I like it a lot. Yeah. I like it almost as much as I like Fargo, uh, which is wild. Um, that is crazy. Aaron, I think you liked it a lot too. Yeah. Uh, it's one of my favorites of there. I, I, I ranked th- all the Coen Brothers movies once I watched <laughs> all of them. Well, Bus- Buster Scrubs come at- came out, and I was like, okay, let's just see where it Buster fits. Buster Scrubs? Buster Scrubs. No, that's you. About a Buster Scrubs. Buster. Oh, no. Uh, Buster Scrubs came out. We referred to Aaron well, as a Buster Scrub. Evaporated. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <I do. laughs> um, no, but I, uh, 
I, I like this a lot. I don't know necessarily where I'd put it, just maybe off the top of my head, but it is certainly, I would say, one of the more underrated films that they've made. Um, I think it is uh, kind of like we were talking about with Fargo, very representative of the Coen brothers' typical style, despite aesthetically maybe being you know with the black and white. Um, Should we go full nerd and just be like, I think both Aaron and I, uh, one of our all-time favorite philosophical writers is Albert Camus and like yeah. this is maybe the most directly referential yeah. that the Coen brothers get toward his um, what would you call his philosophy his work his, his work, work. Yeah. yeah Camus absurdist I, I guess existentialism yeah. but he's, he's he's absurdist yeah, yeah. he, he was uh, <laughs> like really committed to not being an existentialist mostly I think because he hated fucking Sartre yeah, fair. Uh, um, but that's... the the Coen brothers are a lot of their films are are drenched in absurdism. Um, this one is is yeah maybe the most directly referential to Camus' works. Um, I think people with this, and I know you just saw Oh Brother recently. I think people tend to like overstate how much those movies depend on certain works. With Oh Brother, people say it's like, oh, it's just a film version of the Odyssey. I think it's it's not super that. Super not, yeah. It's super not. It takes, I, like... It's interesting. Like, I think it's interesting in reproducing the Odyssey. This is not a... Well, the oh high Brother points. Cast. Yeah. Well, <laughs> let's get into it anyway. Fuck them. Oh Brother's a fucking masterpiece. But that's one of my least favorite. You should movies, watch maybe. it again. I should. Um, so should we just pivot to O Brother now, <laughs> guys? Well, to, to I'll I'll anchor it. There will be a point here. But with, with O Brother, I think that that movie is um, is is more about recreating kind of the popular uh, understanding of the Odyssey than the Odyssey itself, which is mostly ninety percent of that book is. Uh, Odysseus hanging out with suitors and like getting pissed at people wanting to bang his wife. So maybe it is more evocative of and sort of uses that framing to tell a completely different story than it is. One that's rooted in the history of America and and sort of like recasting American myth into something different. I think you're both saying the same thing about this movie. You're just getting angry about it. (laughs) I I think we. I don't think we've disagreed so far. Have we? Harry's would, hand has been in his oh, head, okay. on his face the well, entire time. I think he's talking. more upset at my old brother uh, uh, opinions here. It's not disparagement. Oh, like, brother! <laughs> oh shit! Um, I think the man, the man who wasn't there, is about using absurdist philosophy to kind of uh, contextualize post-war uh, America in the sense of driftlessness and, and aimlessness like, the society yeah, is facing. Yeah, re- yeah. sorry. I didn't want to <laughs> no, get excited about Because uh, you're agreeing with what I'm saying. Keep going. But also, like, in, in just what it means to, to be a, a person struggling for meaning in yeah. general, mm-hmm. right? But, but it's specifically a post-war contextualization that's really well said. Yeah. So it's it's set in the 50s. Uh, correct. Uh, 40s. 40s. Mid to late 40s. Okay. Late 40s, uh, I guess. It is shot in black and white. It is told most... The story is mostly told through monologue. Uh, it's sort of soliloquy. Uh, that's not a soliloquy. It's told mostly through monologue over top of the rest of the um, voiceover. Voice. Thank you. God, like, why is this I word like not? I, I like soliloquy too. It's yeah. not strictly. A yeah, because he's not looking at the audience while saying it, but it right. is narration. But the way, like, there's something pleasing about soliloquy in that it is that that dramatic sort of contextualization mm-hmm. makes it feel soliloquy. It feels, yeah, especially since he doesn't do a lot of active speaking. Like that, his voice overlaid above, like above. Uh, a shot of himself, like it feel, it gives the same sort of vibe as a soliloquy. It is. Right? It's almost like a fourth wall breaking version of himself yeah. because it's yeah. he's not diegetic, right? Well, like, and eventually it's framed. Uh, we yeah. eventually figure out that he's mm-hmm. literally writing his life story from prison, and so like when we hear these soliloquies, they are the narration of the book that he's writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if this would work as a stage play. I feel like it would. I, f- I feel like it would. Yeah. Like, I mean, 
I'm trying to think of anything visually or interiorly. The that would, yeah. they have a lot of reused, uh, like a lot of reused locations. Um, it's just like the characters have changed and differentiated since then, since the last time you saw them. I I don't know that it wouldn't like the um sure. the some of the stuff near the end. They kind of shift between locations quite a bit, especially like um when uh, uh Billy Bob Thornton's character and uh what's her name Birdie. Birdie. Like yeah. that, I don't like the set, and then like we're driving, and then there's a car accident. Have you ever seen that depicted in uh, in a plate? Oh, yeah. Ooh, yeah. You get the you get the the, the screen that just kind of goes around on a roller yeah. in the back. That's a good. My name plate is uh, Cody Narvison. Um, it's been a while since I've seen Oh Brother Where Art Thou. Uh, literature and theater aren't my strong suits, so I've kind of been uh, hung out to dry so far. But I do understand movies, fucker. Hung out to dry, <laughs> like uh, like your dry cleaning, perhaps. This movie's about haircuts. That's true. <laughs> it is about Wendy's. <laughs> I am owned. <laughs> there was something being said there, value like a second ago, and I'm trying to remember what to go back <laughs> to now. Of value yeah, there was <laughs> the man who wasn't owned for the play bit before oh, the point that wasn't there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is this a? Uh, so Cody, this was your. Well, was this everybody's first time? Seeing yeah, it was my first, time. Yes. It was my first time. Yes. So what impress? Because I'm always interested with the Coen Brothers. We talked about this on the the Fargo cast that I'm going to assume will come up for this, but I guess I don't know. Um, <clears throat> Coen Brother movies often make a very weird first impression, where a lot of people do need kind of more watches in order to really get into them. Um, I guess what was the kind of first watch like? Ending credits start rolling. What were your kind of thoughts there? Uh, um, mostly that it was just a l- very plotty. Sure. Uh, I don't think it's in a bad way. Again, I haven't had a whole time, a lot of time to like think critically about the film, but from what I remember of it, yeah, there's like a lot that actually happens in this movie, and it never feels like a lot is happening. I guess like there's a clear <laughs> climax to the film, but everything preceding that and everything following that is just kind of like the level happening. I guess there's no real yeah. peaks or valleys, and that's really well uh, complimented and um, brought through in Billy Bob's narration in that he's. Just, I cannot stress enough how devoid of emotion and, and life his voice is, no he matter what point. called it a point. flat affect, which I thought was, like, the perfect descriptor. Right. It's it's totally, like, lifeless in his... Uh, there's even an instance during the scene we already spoke about where James Gandolfini's character uh, is killed, and he's killed by Billy Bob Thornton's character. But um, he is asked to come to the office by James Gandolfini in the middle of the night, but he's interrupted that that call interrupts his inner monologue where he's talking about how he met his wife and how they like their the basis of the relationship is a little bit rocky because they don't really know that much about each other and then cut with this call the whole scene plays out it's like five or seven minutes of this scene and then he comes back to the exact spot he was in same shot and everything and then he just continues his sentence from there just completely lifeless completely passionless throughout throughout everything that he's doing yeah um so that if I had to characterize my impression of the movie overall, it was that it was like it was asking me to care a lot about a lot of different things in the movie that but not like presenting them in that way, so I had to meet it most of the way sure. toward its point, I guess. It's very cold, right? Like it's hard yeah. to get even though the the movie is um focused on this one character, uh you you don't really get inside of his brain so much, even though I mean, you do a little bit with the, the narration. Um, but for most of the movie, I mean, again, he's not speaking. He is very silent. You get the feeling that he's thinking a lot of stuff, but not necessarily putting right. out I, any emotions. I just cut right? the hair. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, the things that I took and will continue to take away from this movie are they echo a lot of uh, what Jason mentioned, um, just like the plot heaviness, the kind of 
like the the dredging along it feels like sometimes where it's like uh, like what am I watching right now? Um, to this film's immense credit, it is uh, beautiful. Um, it's amazing. This, yes. this is uh, like the Deacons put on like a masterclass of what black and white cinematography probably is. should be. Mm-hmm. Um, the barber shop is one of the best arenas and sets I've seen for uh, this type of camera work. Um, the cigarette smoke, the falling hair, the whirly gig thing that's outside of a barber shop, the swirly what is that called? candy cone thing. I'm I gonna throw more words out. Barber pole. Barber pole. Barber yeah. pole. Uh, like, go ahead. Oh, and I was just and like the blinds of the windows, like contributing to these mix of black and whites and shadows. Yeah, uh, it, it was the incredible. Store the people driving in cars. The department yeah. store too is yeah. The porches. The, the James Gandolfini murder sequence yeah. is like one of my most favorite framed filmed things that i've seen in yeah. a long time it's uh it, it's so it's juxtaposed too against like the darker shots of like the uh the shots i guess in like the jail prison? i guess the prison yeah, yeah in the in the interrogation cell wherever he is tony shalhoub has a great like when he's just kind of riffing he's he's got like a fucking spotlight on him it looks Man. immaculate Tony Shalhoub in this fucking movie. Oh my yeah. god. Like Shout out to Tony Shalhoub. Is that what you got from this movie? Like the movie I, ended, you were like, Tony Shalhoub! Fuck yeah, I was like, gonna go watch Monk. Shalhoub cast. Uh, it's, it's interesting that, that Jason um, found the coldness in this movie because I understand that um, what, I, what actually really works for me for this movie is I find it to be one of uh, the Coen Brothers' more tender movies, honestly. Um, like, I, I think that it, it has like a lot of like poignant like and legitimate sympathy for its characters yeah. and for the suffering of all people basically um especially and and this is something that in my opinion is something that the coen brothers kind of struggle with but it's it's deeply sympathetic and deeply empathetic towards doris and birdie the two yep. main female characters you know in a way that again like even something like fargo uh tends to punch down uh this movie doesn't do a lot of punching down. I think it's it's no. more it's more interested in critiquing power. Um, I think that the the one character that this movie really devotes a lot of time to critiquing is James Gandolfini's character, who is a, a sort of power figure. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason uh, that he uh, like even calls Billy Bob's character Ed Crane Ed Crane uh, yep. is. To, because he wants help getting out from under this uh, threat of blackmail that uh, Ed Crane himself like sent to James Gandolfini's character, and he's more most worried about like his reputation in in town and his like uh, expertise as a businessman falling under scrutiny and like his name being ruined rather than like yeah yeah. And his uh, it's an interesting kind of companion with Fargo because kind of like William H Macy's character, uh, he is not powerful himself. He's only powerful because his wife. And his wife's family is very wealthy and owns the department stores that he and helps run. Mm-hmm. He's extremely similar to William H. Macy's yeah. character because we find out he's stealing Valor. Uh, he literally, <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry to use he that, is canceled. that uh, unironically, but it's literally true. He spent his his war experience, which he touts and, and is a fundamental part of his personality. He uh, Did I say something? Did I say touts when I meant to say totes? Is that? Never mind. You can cut that. Um, totes. I'm not cutting love, any I of this. I love this just extremely confused no cell face that Jason's <laughs> giving me. That makes it extremely. <laughs> I'm game like a Scooby Doo. Like um, <laughs> uh, I was saying about um, stealing valor. Yeah, he uh, James Gandolfini's character is is a He Man type character that's meant to contrast Billy Bob. His uh, Billy Bob's wife is having an affair 
with uh, with this James Gandolfini character whose name is uh, um, Doris Crane. Big Dave. Poster. Oh, Big Dave is the yeah. <laughs> yeah. Big Big Dave. Yeah. Uh, literally, his name is Big Dave. He he talks about how he killed so many Japanese soldiers in World War II that he was a hero. He basically yeah. uh, conquered. I think later on, Tony he won Shadoop the war. Says that he he conquered the Pacific single handedly to make fun of him. <laughs> when in reality, he sat in a uh, like a warehouse or a shipping. Um, facility in san francisco yeah like a dockyard in san francisco but it's so important to him to to construct that identity for himself as as a he-man as like a, a soldier and a, a war veteran and a hero yeah um that when it comes down around him uh he's reduced to this sort of pathetic individual much like william h macy yeah because both of those characters wanted so badly to be something other than what they are um, yeah, I, I, th- I think my main take about this movie, I kind of touched upon it, but it, it is very concerned, and it doesn't really come out and say it a lot, but it is very concerned with post-war America and this feeling of unease and this feeling of, of kind of nowhere to go, right? This um, will not hold, right? Yeah. In the sort of postmodern, modernist sense. I'm sorry. It, it is a, I'd say it's a postmodern film for well, sure. Well, in, in existentialism is a post-World War II philosophy yeah. that developed in reaction to post-war anxiety yeah. about how the, the sort of fundamental ideas about the way humanity works and the way that, that we are can't and never could have yeah. been true. Yeah. And that leaves us with what? Yeah. Uh, and Big Dave is able to navigate this world and have a place in it by essentially making up a mythology that he, it, you know, exists in his current position because of, despite the fact that it's not true. Um, Ed Crane, however, has nothing. I think it's mentioned earlier that he didn't uh, fight in the war because of some sort of medical disease, like some sort of like... He has flat feet. Basically. Flat feet, yeah. yeah. Um, and he has nothing then right like he is he is completely dissatisfied uh or at least apathetic towards modern life there's a a scene where someone asks him about uh his house and he says like yeah i got all the modern amenities got the fridge got the you know it's driveway okay, got the yeah and it's but it's not okay right like it provides no value to him right um, yeah and no meaning it's 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 important uh you that was well said i'm sorry if i'm talking too much guys. no you're good uh but uh <clears throat> this is this is a sort of at the heart of, of a lot of my issues like i i like this movie a lot and it really appeals to me specifically in a lot of ways but the ways in which it appeals to me specifically make me sort of wary about it which is that like this is such a movie about the suffering of the privileged class yeah the suffering like it's it's so much a movie about the suffering of a particular white man uh and it's that was sort of a critique i would have of existentialism itself is this idea that like these are like it was a movement largely populated by navel-gazing, privileged-class white dudes and white women. Uh, I shouldn't erase Simone de Beauvoir. Uh, but, um, and it, it, it's sort of frustrating to be like, that, that like we're in a we're in a place where these these people who have the the modern amenities of life are able to look back and say that is not my beautiful wife that is not my beautiful home and, and think about how all of these things that we've attained are actually empty when it's like there are people who still have nothing right <laughs> like it's it's an equal in unequal society and so like the the sort of like navel gazing of the inherent absurdity of life even when life is stable and good it can't be happy um appealed to me a lot for a long time and then i uh i sort of 
started thinking about how lots of people don't have the opportunity to navel gaze. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's it. There's a scene where he he's on trial and Tony Tony Shalhoub's uh, lawyer character is essentially telling the jury that he you know this char- this man is modern man right. Um, and it's like a very pointed it's scene. It's a very it's funny like, scene because it's the Coen brothers looking directly at people like yeah. us, people like me and you who are like critiquing this movie and trying to come up with a uh, reading of it and just taking the, the hot take. Yeah. Like Tony Shalhoub is literally like analyzing this movie for us and being like, look, it's this guy. And then just like it's it's the Coen brothers poking fun at us, basically. And then Tony Shalhoub has to leave because he can't get paid anymore. <laughs> uh, yeah. Go on. Yeah. Uh, I was just going to say that, you know, I think you mentioned in your Letterboxd review that, that, you know, the Coen Brothers, most of the Coen Brothers movies are about white men, um, which is, you know, I find it hard to fault any one specific film for that, but, you know, they've made uh, 20 movies at this point, right? Um, And in general, they they don't cast a lot of people of color. Um, I think they're pretty good at writing female characters, but this movie is a movie that is so deeply concerned about... Uh, uh, masculinity post World War II, um, and it's I like it for what it is. But yeah, I can definitely see the the feeling of like you know this is a movie about privileged people right. with and that's, their privileged I, that's problems. Why I couched it. I like it for what it is a lot too. Yeah, I really like like the the post World War II absurdism of like confronting this idea that like fundamentally the dream of both America and of sort of modern life broadly constructed that like you can construct an identity for yourself based on your work, based on your interpersonal relationships, based on uh, where you are and who you are historically, contextually, is not true and has never been true. And we are living in in a world where there is no path toward answers. Um, And and all of these people, I think I brought up uh, a couple of episodes ago, this sort of weird Eldemovar-esque central thesis that afflicts every character this movie is definitely another like central affliction movie where like everyone in this movie is similarly afflicted by an overwhelming knowledge of the absurdity of life where like they know that they're not the people they want to be they know that there is no answer uh and they're desperate for it Hmm. and at, at different times each of these characters finds what they think is their answer right um francis mcdormand's character uh, starts her relationship with da- Big Dave Brewster because she he's her answer. Uh, if if this He-Man uh, Superman character can be attracted to her, if they can have a life together, then she can be this person she's always wanted to be uh, as opposed to being with Ed Crane um, who is sort of a marriage of convenience. Their relationship is actually really interesting. Uh, similarly, Ed Crane, um, he gets into the dry cleaning because, like you said in your summary, it sort of, like, works its way into him, right? Yeah. Where, like, this this huckster takes him for a ride, and he knows that he's being taken for a ride. Is he like, being taken for if. a ride, though? Uh, yeah. I mean... He, no, he is. Like, they established that later in the movie. I, th- I thought that the reason that the uh, so so yeah. there there is a point where the 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 businessman who does propose this to Ed, um, he kind of never hears from him again. I got the because f- it does turn out at near the end of the movie that he was killed by Big Dave because Big Dave. Um, I guess we should uh, an important plot point is that Big Dave knew this businessman uh, and they were kind of ex business associates and they no longer get along. So that kind of plays into the whole blackmail idea. Um, 
it turns out that Big Dave kills him because he finds out that he has the money that was blackmailed from him. Um, That's so I, Crichton Tolliver, right? Crichton Tolliver is the businessman. Played man. by John Polito, I believe. Yeah, in a very, a very good role, very squirrely. Yeah, he's sweating uh, constantly and the, he's patting himself. The, by far the worst part of this movie is yeah. that uh, he makes a pass at Ed Crane, Billy Bob Thornton, um, and it's implied he's homosexual, which also goes on to imply that in World War II, homosexuals were these sort of snake oil salesmen and these sort of fly-by-night type people. Yeah. Uh, it completely undermines the whole fucking message of this movie. And it's I'm not at all sure why that is. Like, it's not brought back up as part of his character. It is, it's literally just a short scene where he, like, lays subjectively, sub, excuse me, subjectively, suggestively, holy Christ, on a hotel bed, and Ed is seated very proper, rigid, in the in a chair in the corner, and he's just like, was that a pass? He's he like, winks at him. Yeah. Once. I don't yeah. know. Maybe Literally it was just to characterize him as a character of low morals, like we're in the fucking Victorian era. That feels uh, yeah. You can go Jesus. fuck yourself for that, you guys. Like holy shit, that's a terrible scene. Uh, I guess I see what they're going for. Maybe no, I don't. I take that back. Yeah, I, I don't that's know how much scene. how much leeway I can give for that one, but yeah, re- good, really, really great performance by John Polito. Like he d- he is pretty sleazy. Ultimately, like yeah. it does come off really. He has a, really he has a hair ac- piece. Ac- ac- um, yeah, that's a it's, really good it's, part. Yeah, so you know, Ed he is puts on barber. to conduct business. Yeah, like he doesn't have it on until it's like he's got the papers ready to sign. I love that little bit. Yeah, he goes into the barbershop to get his hair cut, and Ed starts, you know, getting his scissors out, and he's like, "Oh no, wait a second. And he takes off this ridiculous, <laughs> kind of ridiculous looking hair piece, and he's like, "It's the most realistic one. Ah, you didn't even know, did yeah. you?" And he has just this weird little like monk ring around his head. Which uh, what does he really trim there? Like two hairs. <laughs> I guess you know he would need a haircut too. But, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like uh, Ed Crane, Billy Bob Thornton's character, he almost knows he's being taken for a ride, but this what if becomes the sort of motivating factor of his life. Because throughout this, he's he's apathetic because that apathy is a defense against the sort of inherent absurdities of the world that they live in, right? Is that like he, he has never really felt any particular way towards his wife, so he doesn't really care that she's having that affair. Um, he doesn't care about his job because it's his... Uh, father-in-law's company he doesn't own anything there he's just the barber he just cuts the hair and so he has this urge all of a sudden to own something to have something of his own much like william h macy's lot in fargo yeah um that's another through line is like the ownership of property and and what that makes you uh what is it what is it that changes his mind about that what like am i forgetting a plot point that like spurs him to be like that he wants to own i mean it, it was really i kind of felt that didn't not that it didn't land, but it was just him talking through in a voiceover, right? Like him thinking it over to himself. Like, am I missing anything? No, I think that's literally just like he, he just talks himself into it, right? Talks himself into the, the dry cleaning? Yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know. I kind of took it, I mean, shit like that's still popular, right? Like, there's a reason that, that like, telephone scams around, like, tax season are so, like, pre- prevalent and I mean, I right now, right? I think the scam-like nature of it is more important than than how he does it, right? Like, I, I agree, like, it seems weird that given this character's overwhelming apathy for everything else, he would all of a sudden gravitate towards this. Um, but the idea is that the answer is always a sham, yeah. right? Like, in in uh, in Big Dave Brewster's case, his answer that he can he can self-mythologize and make himself this, this He-Man, uh, larger-than-life persona is based on a lie. That lie comes crashing down, and it turns out he's just a um, scrub who's running a, wear, or a department store for his father-in-law, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, 
he has to take out a loan to like pay this ransom and he's a ruined man and then he goes off the handle uh ed cranes um has two big motivating answers in this movie the first of which is the dry cleaning that turns out to be a sham that he has to kill for in the end Mm -hmm. uh and then birdie who is this supposedly innocent talent and uh played by um scarlett johansson an asian actress really nice great to see some great representation in this film Um, unfortunately with the homosexual character it's not a great like representation but there is a diversity of cast in this movie (laughs) uh scarlett johansson is known for uh whitewashing roles in movies just in case you're listening to this podcast yeah Uh, (laughs) thank you for being the editor um uh, i I think the uh, well sorry i just cut you i cut you cool I, i think the dry cleaning is kind of representative of uh you know, it is kind of like the next stage of the American dream. Like, like it is a, a technological um, they achievement. They the cleaning of the future or whatever. Yeah, it's, it will solve all your problems, right? He mentions, hey, there's no shrinking. There's no need to fold. It doesn't get anything wet. Um, it is kind of this, this technological marvel that will solve all the problems with the current way that, I guess, you clean clothes, right? So for Billy Bob Thornton, it is like... It, it's a way to get rich, but it also is like kind of this trouble-free future that's like an easy investment for him. The trouble-free future is really well said, yeah. yeah. It's like, that was the promise of all of those technological yeah. advancements. But, but not, not just a trouble-free future, but also a roadmap towards a future, right? Where like anything that's not just this forever. Because that's the, that's the overwhelming fear that he has, is that like there's great monologues in the barber shop about how like he, he's looking down at the hair, and, and he, this is his one philosophical monologue that he actually says out loud, where he's looking down at a kid's hair, and he has, like, six different haircuts, and he says, like, I cut this hair, and it falls off, and then I... I actually have a quote directly here, because I was going to bring that up, because I, I really like the exchange, but I don't know what significance it had. Well, can, wait, can we, um, can you not, can we get Billy Bob back in here to read that? Can we get Billy Bob to read this quote? Uh, Unfortunately, he's he has left gone. the building. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm sorry. Was he was he was only able. He's in between shoots. You guys are uh, cowards. <laughs> he went to St. Paul to be bored for a while. I'm actually back, guys. If you want to hand me the phone, I'll take a look. Harry, why are you doing a Billy Bob impression? It's not. Jesus, so, no, man. Gone. He's gone. All right. What's the, what's the quote? <laughs> Just do it in your normal voice, then, I guess. <laughs> Well, we should have two people doing this. I'll edit this back in. In unison, like mute? No. <laughs> because it's dialogue. It's not just an inner monologue. I can do it if you don't want to. Frank. Huh? This hair. Yeah. You ever wonder about it? What do you mean? I don't know. How it keeps on coming. Just keeps on growing. Yeah. Lucky for us, huh, pal? No, I mean, it's growing. It's part of us. And we cut it off and throw it away. Come on, Eddie, you're gonna scare the kid. Ed shuts off the clippers and gives the apron a flap. Flap? Okay, bud, you're through. The kid hops down, still reading his comic, and ambles for the door. Ed gives Frank a considering stare. I'm gonna take this hair and throw it out in the dirt. What the I'm gonna mingle it with the common house dirt. What the hell are you talking about? Ed turns back to the counter to hang up his clippers. I don't know, skip it. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Wow, really Thanks, beautiful, guys. Yeah. Uh, well, Billy Bob did come back. Thank wow. you for listening to Trilove. Also, the actor who plays uh, his barbershop friend came in for a second there, too. That was really weird how they were both here at the same time. We're 
blessed. That was not Truly. us just doing their voices. Yeah, yeah unfortunately, uh, they couldn't get all the way down to the yeah, street because they didn't have That's a great mics. scene because that's the sort of background static that defines all of these characters, right? Is this knowledge of mortality and like this knowledge that what they're doing doesn't matter and it's just going to happen over yeah. and over again until it doesn't. And they're all desperate to escape from that secular sort of like decaying loop where it's like we're circling the drain and like I want to stop circling the drain I want to find a way towards a future that's not just leading towards one inevitable terrible yeah. conclusion the, the hair keeps growing right like it keeps growing and it never stops growing and it you wake up every it day just stops and growing and it never you know stops in, growing. in uh in face of the absurdity of life your hair keeps growing no matter what it you keeps gotta pushing that boulder, push up the the hill. boulder up the hill whoa uh Harry your comments there uh made me think of I mean, where this movie ends up and something that I've been kind of wrestling with, um, just like interpreting specifically Ed's relationship with Birdie, where this whole like searching for his answer, um, like it, in the end, it leads to in a, well, that car encounter uh, going what away from. That scene? I don't, do you, do you want to, do you want to take <laughs> no, it? I knew someone would have to. We don't uh, have to be immature Birdie about this. Birdie tries to blow <laughs> Ed in his car while he's driving, and and it, it's all that incident ultimately. I mean, leads to a literal spiraling crash, Ooh. to which like Ed sees his. I mean, th- that's how they find um, John Polito, Creighton Tolliver's body, and that's. I mean, that's ultimately it leads to Ed's downfall. Demise. From, de- yeah, demise. Um, yeah, I really, really like the Birdie subplot. Um, I don't think that it shames Birdie, uh, crucially. I think that it, it shames, uh, Ed. For sure. Yes. Which is really powerful and difficult to pull off. I was going to say it's it's kind of a tightrope, specifically that dynamic, because have we already stated that Birdie is a teenager? Yep. Yeah. She's, Uh, I... She's, I think Scarlett Johansson was 17 at the time of filming. An, she was really, young. It's an yeah. uncomfortable dynamic from, right. from the jump. It's, yeah. And so I, I guess we can introduce it, right? Um, she is the daughter of a lawyer that Ed Crane knows that he went to for advice about... Um, Walter Abundus, played by Richard Jenkins. In a, another star turn. Yeah. Fantastic. A great, uh, another great supporting movie. Yes, it the is. ensemble's really, really wow, wildly this good. Is a, this is a great movie, everybody. Yeah, uh, I can't believe you guys didn't want to talk about this movie. Home Brothers can like, direct uh, <laughs> some actors. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, that dynamic between Birdie and yeah, the relationship. Uh, Birdie, and so basically, Ed, after his wife ends up in, in prison, um, which is sort of his fault, um, well, extremely his fault. Uh, <laughs> Literally and exactly his fault. Yeah, he starts hanging out, basically, with these this family. Um, especially, like, their daughter, Birdie, because she's a talented pianist. And he finds a sort of inner peace and calm when he listens to her play piano that he alleges is virtuous and completely on the level without any sort of... um, Undertones. Undertones. Uh, I think the movie frames those undertones as there, although I I legitimately don't think they exist in Ed's mind, which, again, is an interesting tightrope that I think the movie pulls off. Yeah, I don't think there is any... I don't think he has any sort of sexual attraction Right, I, I legitimately don't think that's I don't true. think so either. Um, Use this uh, in any way that you will. This is um, one of the uh, more uh, helpful facts on the IMDb trivia uh, section of this film's IMDb page. Um, so... Billy Bob Thornton went through the scene where he meets Birdie, and she's playing the piano at 
what was it like a company party right a nerdling it's, uh, party it's a, it's a big dan's department store yeah. party he uh constructed himself in some way when he's sitting down to make it look like he had an erection and he had to be told after the fact that that's like not what they were doing with that relationship or with that role i didn't actually go back and watch to see if that was like is this like the the crease from the seinfeld it is yeah the crease it is um i think curb your enthusiasm does something with it too uh, okay some kind of crease oh yeah that's David. right it's from curb it's not from but, but oh like did i'm not and it, i guess it, it just makes you think like how like how does that permeate under like what what any given person is doing in, in, yeah mm. really and, and okay. i think the movie's concerned with whether or not that sort of like utterly virtuous relationship with the difference of power dynamic can even exist and ed thinks it can and he becomes obsessed with this idea of being a sort of like patron and uh what is the word i'm looking for beneficiary benefactor benefactor for birdie and and uh encouraging her to pursue this piano uh career that she thinks that he thinks is is a great future for her and he thinks that that is wherein his salvation lies as well is he says as much he's like as long as i can help birdie and like like create a future for her and let her develop her talents in this way um that'll be enough for me um and it turns out that that she's not as good. Well, there are extenuating circumstances, but basically he takes her to this tutor, and this tutor doesn't think she's good enough. But then it turns out that Bertie didn't actually even want to be a piano player in the first place. Um, and she had interpreted these sort of advances that Ed had been making as sort of a sexual uh, passes. And she tries to um, communicate that with the scene that I brought up already. That was said much um, more diplomatically now than it was yeah, the first time. I mean, I, you know, I, like... We need to stop being 17-year-olds about it. It's just... Yeah, yeah, that happens. It's, it's a sense. I mean, it's a an extremely hard scene to watch. It, like, it's, yes, it's it one is. of the most so, awkward right? things. Because it yeah. turns out that Ed wasn't considering how she was taking this relationship in the first place. Yeah. She was a symbol for him. A mm. symbol of childhood innocence and the idea of protecting and guiding that when in fact she was a fucking human being who had her own agenda in her own beliefs. And it like it partially turns out that the reason why these, these sort of interpersonal salvations can never be achieved is because when you're making somebody else your personal savior, you're not thinking about what they want or who they are as people. The same yeah. thing happens with Big Dave. The same thing happens with... Uh, um, Ed's wife, um, Jesus, Doris. Doris, thank you. I'm sorry. Francis McDormand's amazing. Francis McDormand, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but but that's that's a, a really important point that this movie makes, is that like that's part of why these sort of like missions towards salvation that we all want so desperately, according to this movie, fail, is because the moment you do that, you put somebody on a pedestal. You're not making them a human being. And Birdie never wanted to be this sort of like this this purity scion that ed was trying to make her she was a person it was literally yeah it was literally just ed too like you see the type of um i mean maybe growing up growing up being like somebody who played sports not uh, specifically watching other 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 families just like you know kids who uh like were were prodigious athletes or musicians like that is something you typically see some parents like really you know my kids i'm gonna live vicariously through my child right and like deifying and richard jenkins's character was never like that it was literally just ed crane right he's a soccer 
dad. Yeah, basically. a creepy, so- yeah, a creepy soccer dad who's not really her dad. Why are you not playing my kid first quarter? Creepy huh? soccer uncle. Jerry, is Jerry not good enough to play? Uh, you put him on defense. Should be on offense. Who's the Jerry Center, in this story? Starter. I don't know. Just oh, okay. I, I, yeah, <laughs> I played soccer growing up, and there are a lot of like parents who are like, "My kid's going to be a professional yeah. soccer player right. or some shit." Listen, he picked up the ball with his hands. We can't put that kid on offense. Yeah. No, you so, definitely can. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, so that's not a, against. That's, a that's against point the rules. I really liked. I think it works really well into this movie's bigger theme of the idea that um, this sort of yearning and, and mythologizing towards a future that isn't the only future that mm-hmm. any of us have uh, and and the the harm and terror that can come out of that out of the egoism we sorry we just talked about Fargo so I'm going to get to that but but it's always about restlessness and self anger that becomes expressed in the form of hurting other people, either through mythologizing them or mythologizing yourself or what have you, and it it leads to this pain. Um, And so in the Coen Brothers universe, there's always this idea that, like, the pain within you is never only within you, right? It will express itself and hurt other people and lead to more suffering. Mm -hmm. Um, Are these themes that we connect or parallel with the whole, like... UFO aliens undertones to this film because uh, just to set it up, uh, Anne, who is Big Ed, Big Dave's, Big, Dave. Big Dave's widow, uh, has I believe that's her character, right? Um, mm-hmm. She has an obsession with the occult and with um, UFOs, UFOs yeah. in particular. And uh, Ed reads about this these these uh, theories in the newspaper, and he has that revelatory dream near the end, just before his execution, about walking out of the prison. Was it a dream? About walking out of the prison and and seeing a UFO land or come close to the earth, and then he heads back in, yeah. ignoring it more or less. Is During that, uh, one of my all time favorite monologues, I think in movies. It's very that last fifteen minutes of this are incredible. flawless. Yeah. yeah. Um. I again like. I, Maybe it's just a sensibility thing. Uh, one of my favorite movies ever is uh, Paris, Texas. Uh, another movie that is overwritten. I think this movie is pretty overwritten. There's like a lot of monologues. Well, necessarily, most it, almost. Most of it takes place in the interiority of Ed's mind. Um, it just so happens that I fucking love overwritten movies. So, yeah, <laughs> it's but, but more. Anyway, yeah. The, the, like, I, he has a lot of really great uh, lines in that scene. Right? He says something about how um, when you when you look at the the like. I can't remember the architecture of your you of, of the maze. You see that it's the course of your life or something. Yeah, there's a really good line. Like you there. look back on it later, and it was yeah. the course of your life. Um, but anyway, I'm sorry. You were saying about the the UFO motif. Was um, that did, was that random for you? Because uh, the same it, thing happens in Fargo season two, and a lot of yes. people complained. I, well, yeah, yeah. spoilers, spoilers yeah. for you, Fargo. I don't know, which is a great TV show. You yeah, spoiled two things. Billy Bob's in, in season one. He's amazing. He is very good in this. Uh, no, it, like it didn't take me completely off guard. It was obviously like a, the left field thing, and sometimes the Coens do that left field thing that they only hint at a couple of times, and then just leave you to like try and apply it to the rest of the film's themes. And you know, there's that whole idea of maybe, um, maybe Ed feels like an outsider to the rest of society. He feels like he's struggling in many different respects to relate to like uh, post-war society, but um, and so maybe he feels like alien in that respect but that maybe that's just like connecting words i'm wondering if there's any like meat there or if it was just like a thing for the coens to put in there that was like just flavorful 
So I know how I feel about it, but you can. I'm sorry. Uh, sure. Ahead. In uh, Camus' uh, very famous popular work, uh, The Myth of you Sisyphus. You mean Albert Camus? Yeah. <laughs> uh, he argues that in with the discovery that uh, the universe is cold and uncaring, uh, and with the discovery of the kind of inherent absurdity of life, there are kind of three choices that you can make. Uh, the first is that you can just immediately decide to kill yourself. Uh, you cannot, you know... The possibility of suicide makes us all existentialists. Sure. Yeah, uh, is, I think, a, a famous line. That's a pretty good line, yeah. Yeah, it's a great Yeah, line. it's not bad. I can't believe Harry just wrote that line right now. Um, which I think, you know, Francis McDormand's character uh, is, is somewhat representative of. Uh, the second choice that he says that you can make is that you can make a leap of faith. You can believe in some sort of uh, supernatural presence, God. Uh, I think that is somewhat what the aliens are representing, some okay. larger force outside uh, of... Um, so, like, it's one of the th- one of three assumptions you can make about yeah. the world. And then the, the last is to uh, keep pushing that boulder up the hill. Fight uh, pointlessly, arguably, uh, in the face of absurdity and, and find meaning in that find manner. Find meaning in the suffering itself. The, I think the final line of the myth of Sisyphus is we must imagine Sisyphus happy. Yep. Nailed yeah. it. That's it. Um, yeah. Uh, also, the, the second choice, the leap of faith. I want to do that meme of Camus copying Kierkegaard's homework. Sure. Uh, just to <laughs> mind. Uh, yeah, uh, yes. I felt similarly about the UFO. To me, it was just like, it was the answer, right? It was like, I think that the thing that unites all of these characters is that there's supposed to be something happening for them that isn't. They're supposed to be. They're supposed to have come away from life, having figured something out, having some answer to like, why do I feel this way? Like, why did things happen for me the way that they happened for me? Like, why didn't anything work out? Why mm-hmm. do I? Uh, again, like, uh, this is just another sensibility thing. That's like my favorite shit in movies. Is like people who don't have proper reactions to life and don't understand why, and that's the source of their suffering. Uh, to watch more Coen Brothers movies. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Punch Drunk Love is one of my favorite movies, and that's absolutely yes. just that, is that like all of the characters in that movie like don't feel like they are living correctly and don't know why and are trying to figure out why. Hmm. The Lobster's kind of like that, too. Shout-outs to Yorgos Lanthimos, you know, one of my favorite movies. He's Greek. I'm just going to reference things. Yeah, that's like, that's true. That's all the proof you need. While um, we're at it, shout out Spike Lee, uh, Inside Man, good movie. He's Greek. Uh, I'm Greek. Orson Welles, shout out. The third Man. <laughs> sure. We're doing Inside Man. The Third Man who was the Third Man. Third man. Third yeah. I don't know if the third man is Greek, but Jason is Greek. Hey, if I can be honest, when we were recording The Thin Man, uh, up until I started watching the movie, I thought we were going to watch that movie. The uh, third I was like, man? This isn't the... This, <laughs> wait, oh, no, this is this. And I just like looked right. up the and I was like, no, this is the wrong thing. We're subject matter experts. But, uh, I think that, so I, I actually, again, like I find the UFO a crazy... I'm sorry to be ableist again. Wow. Uh, a very um, tender metaphor because like when when Big Dave's... Big Dave? Big, Big Dave. Dave. Big Dave. Big Dave. I wrote, I, I wrote Big Ed in my notes once, and I didn't realize until three weeks later uh, that it was Dave wrong. Old Brother Art, though. Big Dave oh, was a fucking uh, my wife. I guess I'm what you'd call a cook. <laughs> <laughs> uh, excuse me. Um, but uh, so when Big when <laughs> when Big Dave's uh, wife comes to Ed, she's seen as out of her mind right like she's she's lost it like she's she's talking about ufos and to her the ufo is the answer to her whole life like the reason why big ed stopped 
being with her. She says they, they hadn't had sex since this one night they went camping. The reason he started acting differently, the reason why he developed this terrible ego and urge and, and stopped and grew distant and eventually led to his death was that he was abducted by aliens and the government wanted to stop him. And so eventually they killed him off to stop him. And she says to Ed, so I forgive you, Ed, because there are larger forces at work here. And then she walks away and he just feels sorry for her, right? Because like she's finally out of it. But then at the end of his life, he sees the UFO and the UFO is his answer too, right? And like, that's the answer is that like, there's never going to be there's an, never answer. Gonna be an answer for you. And yeah. so like, like you said, there's this leap of faith where, it, where it's like, like you can construct and you have to necessarily construct a narrative that makes your life make sense because it's never happening yeah. for you. Like it'll never happen for any of us. So we have to make it ourselves. And like, that's to me what the UFO represented. And also the UFO works really well for me because it's such a fundamentally empathetic symbol. It's like, now he understands why she was behaving that way. It was like, like we're all in this together sort of thing, which is like maybe one of the great, um, points in existentialism's favor is that like there is an empathy there uh sartre wrote existentialism is a humanism and the sort of foundation of that is like like we're all uh fundamentally liars because we construct selfhood uh and high selfhood school musical is, is also about the same thing is it I, we're in all in this together totally, yeah oh god well and like like troy has a has it um a selfhood that has been defined for him as the basketball As a sport, yeah, as a Jesus, sportsman. Please, he no. wants to be oh. something more, something else. He wants to Stop also it. Stop be he wants to appreciate the arts. I was going to make that fucking joke. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think the, the, the UFOs also tie in um, to the one thing we haven't touched upon that maybe might be good to bring up is the the quantum physics are kind of brought up I really up a wanted lot. you to bring this up so um, yeah. Ooh, yeah. I'm forgetting. Tony Shalhoub has a big speech about um, the uncertainty. Principle. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Where observing an act like influences it. Piece in this movie, uh, but he does a fin- He's the best mouthpiece. Yeah, yeah. Ever. He's so he's, good. He's the high-paid lawyer that, um, what is the character's, uh, Bernie's dad, uh, I can't remember his name. Walter Abundus. Played by Richard Jenkins. Thank you. He suggests Tony Shalhoub's character uh, because this guy is the best in the county. Right? Freddie Riedenschneider. Freddie Riedenschneider. He's the litigator. Freddie Riedenschneider doesn't <laughs> capitulate. Freddie Riedenschneider uh, litigates. Like that, that was like an unbelievably good line. Uh, but like he's just this fast-talking, amazing uh, lawyer. He's always he's always poked around. He's always done his research. He's always looked, and he. Uh, in the second act of this movie, he is constructing narratives for their court case that is going to get Birdie out of this case. And no, uh, not Birdie. Not Birdie. Well, Doris, first Doris. Doris. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Birdie's uh, Ed's wife. Johansson's character. Yeah. Um, and he doesn't care about the truth. In fact, he doesn't want to hear the truth. Or they try to tell him the truth, and the truth is just another of several competing narratives to him. And he wants to pick the best narrative to get them out of this court case, which, again, like fundamentally ties into the existentialism uh, equation here. Right. Which he, is that like, life is about creating a narrative for yourself. Right. right. Ed even explains to Freddie and to his wife like the actual story, like what happened. He knew Might that be my he, favorite scene he knew the Big Dave and, yeah. uh, and Doris were having an affair, and so he went and killed him at his office and, uh, you know... 
This is this is nested inside of several other false leads. Right, right. right. Where so, Tony Shalhoub's character um, is like trying to come up with the best possible story, so they do one, they do another one, and then uh, Ed Crane, Billy Bob Thornton, is, gives the truth. Just confesses. And uh, this is the first time he's told Doris Crane, but he says like, "I knew about the affair. I was jealous, so I killed him." And so she and she clearly knows that he's telling the truth because she has that look. And then Freddie's like. That's good, but like, let's yeah, go with that for now. It, yeah. Yeah. I think I think he says it's absurd. At one point, he's like, "Oh, that's way too far fetched. Could never happen. Would never sell. I can't use that." Uh, yeah, um, there's a lot of visual motifs that tie into that too. Uh, the, the, there's a UFO drawing on a newspaper while he's he's kind of sitting yeah, in the barbershop, and the UFO is is very clearly um, uh, a reference to. Uh, some diagrams that are often used when explaining the uncertainty principle. It is like clearly a one really? and one thing. Do you want to explain the uncertainty principle? Uh, I mean, you did, right? You said that it's the idea that by observing a uh, phenomenon, you are affecting it in some way. The more you look, the less you know. Sure. That's the, that's the kind of quote that the movie uses a lot. Um, there's a... Deacon's uh, very good. He's very good. There's a scene with the scene in the interrogation room. Um, there's a shot of like this open window and the bars coming through. Uh, some guy on Reddit pointed this out. This is not an Aaron Grossman original thought here, but that is very clearly a reference to the double slit experiment, um, which is. I thought we were t- talking about the man who wasn't there, not video drone. Okay. Oh, oh shit, that's good. <laughs> that's a good joke. Uh, double slit experiment. I have no idea what you're talking about. It just has to do with with <laughs> with light uh, having properties of waves and particles, essentially. But oh. it's there's there's a lot of these kind of visual motifs of quantum physics, specifically the uncertainty principle, that are kind of slipped in in random places uh, in interesting ways. Um, and it, it's also the the fundamental sort of operating. Uh, motif of the movie, right? Is yeah. that the more you look, the less you know, which is what mm-hmm. Tony keeps saying, and it operates for this movie, too. Where like, right. Like, the longer you're in your life, the less your life makes sense to you. Like, the more complicated it becomes, the less you are the person you think you are or the person you're trying to be. I, To that point, I think Richard Jenkins' character, Walter, yes, um, was is an interesting one to look at because he might be pretty clearly one of the oldest people that, who has who's like actually... Or at least in in his role, like he's a father uh, to a teenage child, um, and like he is mostly most often seen either just working, like distracting himself with work, or he's seen like uh, out on the front porch, like a southern dandy, uh, swilling, you know, uh, whatever he's drinking, and just like getting lit off it, and uh, just commiserating with Ed. I think to that point about like the longer you are in your life, the less you know about it, the less like sure you are about anything. He sort of embodies that because he's like sort of hedging and hemming and hawing about a lot of the stuff that's happening with Ed, because this is just around when Doris gets thrown into prison. He's like, it's a hell of a thing. And he's, he's just not like, the person he wants to be, and it's painful. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> we also just see it play out, right? I mean, like, like Ed probably can't even tell you why he killed uh, Big Dave. And, like, we see, we see him transform into a person that he, according to his own monologue, isn't. In this movie, mm-hmm. I mean, like there are explanations for why he did those things. Do those explanations match the interiority of his character? Probably not. But who knows? Does that interiority even exist? <laughs> who knows? If you could relate that to a main character in any work of fiction, <laughs> just bring it up, bring it up, the stranger again, yeah, <laughs> or the stranger, yeah, yeah, um, right. Um, Which, yeah. Is a foundation for this movie, I would say. I, does, it's not. Totally it's not a totally one on one. But like that that idea, like does the exteriority of a person match their interiority? Is mm-hmm. their interiority 
are we just applying that to explain away or give some sense of of cosmic purpose to our lives that doesn't exist yeah that is that is how i saw like the ufos i I mean like i harry i like how you laid that motif out and i guess i sort of read it as a more like something a little more ambiguous like the like we're, we're talking about uh big dave and um uh and nerdlinger Yes. Yes. I, I just. I, I it sounds weird. like you're bully making fun of her. I know. I feel weird. And nerdling. nerdlinger. Um, just like the, the hearing her recall the tale um, of when uh, of, of when uh, Dave was abducted by aliens. Kind of seeing it from her perspective, like the you know she sees you know them go up the mountain and the relationship is status quo. They come down and he wants to have no physical relations with her. Like things are completely different. The presence of the UFO, the explanation of an alien abduction is some sort of cosmic rationale that we are not really privy to. We get a more kind of fleshed out version of that type of rationale um, with like the the sort of interference and maybe how that plays out with, um, with Ed Crane, the, the accident leading to uh, the revelation of Creighton Tolliver's body just i don't know like the the ufo ufo is coming through there when they did just kind of it made me think of how ed crane seems he's presented as a very composed character he's sort of above the situation he's in because he can see everything for what it is you know he talks about it endlessly um but at, at the same time he does get sucked in and the sort of on the the cosmic rationale applied to that leads to as we said his his demise i don't know if any of that makes any sense anymore but yeah um i mean it, it's reasonable doubt right yeah and like that's that's the really great thing about tony shalhoub's character in this movie is that he is perhaps the only person satisfied or or uh <clears throat> in in any way like it turns out that he can't be paid uh Doris, um, again, unfortunately, trigger warning, um, kills herself uh, in prison um, because she, man, this is brutal to talk about, because she finds out he's, she's pregnant with uh, Big Dave's, and at least in I, my opinion, it, I, in my opinion, the movie makes it clear that she finds out Big Dave isn't the person that she wanted him to be, and therefore their child won't be. And that's why she does it, because no. it means that her whole thing is a lie. The, the hmm. pregnancy is... The pregnancy is revealed later in the film than her suicide. I guess it's. It, I took it it's as kind ambiguous. of. Unc- it's ambiguous about whether she knew she was pregnant or but not. Way, whether that impacted the decision. That, right. So like there was the idea that they were going to have a life together, and that presumably their child would be symbolic of that. Because sex is like a recurring motif in this movie. I'm bringing in Michelle Foucault, uh, real quick <laughs> here at here at the yeah, end. Let's do it. Like, let's lay it all out. Let's fucking start uh, naming other. It's it's uh, none of the people in this movie are having sex with the people that they're supposed to be. Uh, there's a great Billy Bob Thornton line where did you uh, write it? I wrote it down. Oh, nice. Uh, he's talking. The coroner comes and says, "Like, sir, I'm so sorry to tell you that uh, your wife is pregnant." And Billy Bob like completely flatly says. My wife and I have not performed the sex act in many years. You fucking nailed it. That's <laughs> it. I wrote it down on my phone and, when uh, he said that. Like, similarly, um, Big Big Dave's uh, wife brings up that he hadn't touched her in mm-hmm. many years since the alien abduction. And so, like, like, sex in this movie isn't just about sex. It's about 
wanting and the attainment of wanting something, right? Wanting to get something from another person, wanting to have some sort of answer. It's about how sex makes you feel about yourself, about like doing it with this person means something. It makes you something. That's why Bernie tries to have sex with Ed. Mm-hmm. That's why uh, Big Dave and Doris have their affair is because those sex acts are making them into the people they want to be by association. Um, and that's why you stop having sex when you stop when it stops making you the person you want to be. Um, which is like a whole power. That's why I talked about fucking Foucault. Uh, sorry to be such a fucking head. Foucault famously um, uh, fucked a lot. Um, just a maniac. Fucko. Just a maniac. Camus? No fucking. Camus is not. Mikey about. Fucko. And there's plenty of both in this movie. There's not plenty of fucking in this movie. Um, Cody looks so unhappy. Inside and out. Yikes. The old in. Please and out. do not. I'm talking about prison. That's a Fargo reference, right? Isn't that a line yeah, of Fargo? Yeah, he does say that. Yep. Yeah. In and out. The old Just in and, and out. out, yeah. yeah. But it, a little bit of the old. It's also a clockwork orange reference. It's hilarious that, that he, yes. he feels so great about getting reasonable doubt uh, because that's that's all he needs, right? He's a, he's a litigator. He's a um, defendant. So what he's all about is finding enough reasonable doubt that their story could be true or their prosecutor's story could not be true that they can't prosecute. And that's what he needs, and that's enough and there's this great shot when tony shalhoub is like on one and he's fucking explaining how because of the uncertainty principle and because of this and that like we're going to acquire uh reasonable doubt and this is going to be the case that makes my fucking career and like he's saying all this and he's over the moon and then we cut back to ed and doris and they're just sitting there stupid fine mm-hmm. because it's like reasonable doubt is not enough for us like we want to know like the answer Mm-hmm. But, like, reasonable doubt is all any of us ever get. Reasonable doubt about ourselves, reasonable doubt about the world, reasonable doubt about fucking aliens. Reasonable doubt, the Jay-Z it. album. It's a classic. It's a classic. It's a classic album. Uh, Freddie Riedenschneider is a fascinating character um, for a lot of reasons. Most of them are Tony Shalhoub related. But uh, <laughs> He's good. Also, just, I mean, the, the fact that the truth is literally whatever he says he is, not, like, he, not even he is above just like the objective rationale in the end because due to cosmic intervention like we already we gave a content warning doris obviously kills herself and like that's it for him like he doesn't get what he wants either he doesn't yeah he says like it's such a shame this could have been the career the case that made my career Mm -hmm. yeah but he doesn't even get that and he can't understand why yeah And and then he and then he represents uh ed on trial and that trial also ends when uh ed's barbershop partner what's the what's that character's name i don't frank, have it frank frank played by uh, michael botaluco yeah Another maybe mispronounced botaluco uh, yeah. performance he's in a lot of the coen, coen brothers, brothers movies yeah. coen brothers have like a like a, a squad cast, yeah. yeah that they he plays uh, uh babyface nelson george nelson and oh brother where art though yeah huh. fantastic role he'd be very angry with me for calling him babyface nelson uh apologies george <laughs> it's a reference to a movie that you haven't seen so Oh brother! <laughs> what was I even saying about his character? Oh, he yeah, he just uh, he he ends up punching Ed during trial, which is the thing that kind of sinks him because it, the trial is a mistrial, and then um, the next lawyer he gets is incompetent. Doesn't he ask him like, "What kind of a man are you?" or something like that? Yeah. Asks him yeah. a very like pointed He's another state of extremely your universe. on the nose. Yeah, uh, yeah, but in a good way. Yeah, capital T truths. 
I think that's all I have about this movie. As really it like is it. for me. Any yeah, other, like any other like, little... I like it a lot more now talking about it. It's, uh, I think it's it really their most underrated film, some, maybe. Yeah, a lot of the really big Coen Brothers um, ideas that they have built their careers on, I think. Yeah. What do you think that Ann Nerdlinger was called as a child? By bullies. Probably Ann. Ann. Probably Ann. Just her first name, Ann. Why would you use some... Why would you use a different name for somebody? I don't know. That... Ms. Nerdlinger. I don't know if they yeah, were being, yeah, if they were being formal. Like, if she, if she got married, Mrs. Nerdlinger. Yeah. Yeah. Nerdlinger son. If she had yeah, traveled. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Little Miss Nerdlinger. Shout out to Shooter McGavin, uh, Christopher McDonald, who plays a salesman <laughs> uh, in the afterlife in a dream. We found a way to bring up Adam Sandler again. Yeah, we did. That's twice. Yeah, in this I know. We're talking about Click? No, I mean, Cody likes bringing up Adam Sandler. Do I? Yeah, you've referenced Adam Sandler a number of times on, like, unrelated... Uh, this doesn't need to be this about, Is this about 50 First Dates? Uh, what there are we was, talking no, about? No, there was oh, an, did, an old woman in... There was an old woman in one of the movies that was yeah, in... Yeah, uh, uh, Blue Velvet. Yeah, the, yeah, which we all saw at the... Yeah, the... We all Grammy, saw that. Yeah. yeah. She was in that. How many... Do, what, do you, you have Adam Sandler facts? That won't come out. <laughs> um, I, I mean, the An- Adam Sandler facts I've presented here... It's a mere fraction of the wealth of knowledge I know <laughs> about Adam Sandler and his filmography. All right. Uh, he's a, he turns in a genius performance and punch drunk love. There's my he is re- capable of it. My review of the man who wasn't there is go watch Punch Drunk Love. Shout out to guess. Punch Drunk Love. Buy it on Criterion. It has a Ooh. Criterion release. Cody, I'm, any other thoughts in your book of thoughts uh, over Trilon there? could show Punch Drunk Love if it wanted no. to. Yeah, That's a good. I have. Shout out to the Trilon. Shout I'm, out to the Trilon. I'm Jason. Oh, okay. I'm Cody. Are we done? I think we're done. I guess we're done. Uh, the man who wasn't there is great. I'm Aaron. <laughs> I'm Aaron.